Welcome. We are so glad you've joined us today. Are you ready for another Bayside Christian Church podcast? Let's get straight into it. Tonight I want to talk about uh, something that we probably all uh, would will we face and walk through in life. And the, and the title for tonight is Standing in the Face of Adversity. And, uh, and so all of us, you know, there's adversity is, you know, there could be a, a problem, there could be a trouble, there could be a, uh, somebody or something standing in the way causing trouble, but there's things happening or something happening in your life that's causing heartache, that's causing pain, and it's adversity. And I want to talk about how we can stand in the face of adversity. We, we, um, we fight us. Fight. I'm back again. We fight a spiritual fight and we don't fight against people, even though that happens in our world. People fight against people and argue with each other, but stirred up by spiritual forces of darkness that want to cause trouble, that want to cause pain and hurt and brokenness. And tonight I want to talk about thinking about that our fight isn't against people, but our fight against is spiritual forces of darkness. And I want to, with that in mind, I want to talk about how do we stand in the face of of adversity when trouble comes, when things come. So I want to share this story, and it's a story you might have read before or heard of before, maybe not, and it's in Second Chronicles chapter 20, and it's a story about um, Jehoshaphat and what happens when a large army comes against him. And uh, I'll start reading at the start of verse 20. It says, After this, the armies of the Moabites, Amorites, and some of the Menusei, Menusei, I think they are, declared war on Jehoshaphat. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army from Edom is marching against you from beyond the Dead Sea. They are already at Hazem Tamar, this or uh, Engadi. And Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news and begged the Lord for guidance. So he's like the Judah and they're a vast army. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of troops. All these nations have come together to fight against him. And when he said they're already on, you know, they just told the news, they're already on the way, they're already organized, they're already marching against him. The Bible says he was terrified. Straight away he knew in the physical realm we can't match them. That they outnumber us. There's more of them than us. And if we fight this battle in just our own strength, we won't win. That's exactly what he thought straight away. And so what does he do? He was terrified of the news and begged the Lord for guidance. So he goes to God. He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting, the whole nation. So people from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah in front of the new uh, courtyard of the temple of the Lord and he prayed and he goes on and prayed and we're going to skip down to verse 8 and it says, part of this prayer says, Your people settled here and built this temple to honour your name. They said, Whenever we are faced with any calamity such as war, plague or famine, we can come to stand in your presence before this temple where your name is honoured. We can cry out to you to save us and you will hear us and rescue us, he declares as he prays. It goes down to verse 12. Oh, our God, won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. We do not know what to do, but we are looking to you for help ones, wives and children. So everyone is there. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people would have gathered together. 
The Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men standing there. His name was Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jehiel, son of Matiah, a Levite who was the descendant of Asaph. He said, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow march out against them. You will find them coming up through the ascent of Ziz at the end of the valley that opens into the wilderness of Jeruel. But you will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you. O people of Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord, the Spirit of God comes upon him and he gives a prophetic word about what is about to happen. Early the next morning, the army of Judah went out into the wilderness of Tekoa on the way. Jehoshaphat stopped and said, Listen to me, all of you people of Judea, Judah and Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. After consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures forever. So he stops them all, has a conversation, talks to them and then says, Everyone, every worshipper come to the front before the army and begin to sing and begin to worship God. At the very moment they began to sing, in verse 22 it says, and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir to start fighting among themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. And they had destroyed, and after they destroyed the army of Seir, they began attacking each other. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. I don't know what the last guy did. Just a thought. King Jehoshaphat and his men went out to gather the plunder. They found vast amounts of equipment, clothing and other valuables, more than they could carry. There was so much plunder that it took them three days just to collect it all. On the fourth day, they gathered in the Valley of Blessing, which got its name that day because the people praised and thanked the Lord there. It is still called the Valley of Blessing today. Then all the men returned to Jerusalem with Jehoshaphat leading them. Overjoyed, the Lord had given them victory over their enemies. They marched in Jerusalem to the music of harps, lyres, trumpets, and they proceeded to the temple of the Lord. They went back again to worship when they, like they went before they left. When all the surrounding kingdoms heard that the Lord himself had fought against the enemies of Israel, the fear of God came over them. So Jehoshaphat's kingdom was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. That's a powerful story. And I, I share that story because it gives a picture of, of a spiritual warfare for our lives. The first thing you notice that he did when he got that news is that he went to God for guidance. He, uh, and he also said to all the people, well, you need to come and we need to come and pray and fast together. He gathered the Everyone together said, come to the temple, come to the church, come to the gathering point and let's worship God and fast and pray. He didn't, you know, organize, he didn't go to his officials straight away and goes, look guys, we've got, 
you know, we, I need your counsel, I need your wisdom. This army's coming. It's way bigger than us. We need to organise the troops. We need to do this. We need to do that. What do you think we should do? Should we stay in the city? Should we defend it? Should we go out and meet them? Should we just, should we leave the city and flee? They didn't talk about any of that stuff. He straight away went to God first. The Bible says he went to God for guidance first. Jehoshaphat himself led the prayer and then God answered with a prophetic word. He, he started to pray and because they went to God first, because they prayed and because they fasted and lift up the name of God and because they asked his advice first, God answers and the Spirit of God become, comes upon a man standing there and he says, basically, God says, it's my battle, it's not your battle. In other words, they've picked a fight with the wrong people. They've picked a fight with the wrong people. Because you put me first, because you haven't gone and trying to do it in your own strength, your own way, your own might, he said, it's my battle, not your battle, and I will fight for you. The question I have is, how many battles are we fighting in our lives that aren't our battle? How many battles are you fighting that aren't your battle? How many battles are you trying to win? I'm talking emotional battles, spiritual battles, stuff in your life that God says, why are you fighting that battle? It's not your battle. He said, it's my battle. He said, if you will put me first, if you will stop trying to fix that problem, if you will stop trying to do work it out your way and do it your, do it your way and, and just go every other way, he said, if you would just come to me first and ask me, he said, I will answer you. And my, and my advice to you says, they've picked the fight with the wrong person. They picked, the enemy has picked the fight with the wrong person. He's come against you. He said, it's, I'll fight for you. I will fight that battle. And that battle is not your battle to fight. It's not a battle you can win in your own strength. But he said, I will give you supernatural strength. And I will come against, remember we're talking about a spiritual enemy. I will come against the spiritual enemy that's trying to attack your life and to do, cause destruction in your life. He said, because it's my battle, not your battle. How many battles are you fighting in your life that you shouldn't be fighting? that you should be allowing God to fight on your behalf. That all you need to do is partner with Him and agree with Him and say, God, I realize I can't do this in my own strength. I can't get over this thing in my own strength. I can't get over this addiction in my own strength. I can't get over this. I can't sort this relationship out. I can't sort these things out that, that's going on in my life. I can't do it in my own strength. God, I need you. And God said, I'll come and fight for you. I'll come and fight for you. And so he recognized straight away, and because they went to God first, God gave them his answer. And as the army goes out, he stops them and chats to them, and he, and he does a strange thing. He, instead of, you know, there's a battle they think is going to happen, but they know there's a massive army coming, and he says that we we'll want all the singers to come. All the singers, all the musicians, everyone, the worship has come to the front and he brings them all to the front and they begin to praise God and sing. And the most powerful thing is that as soon as they did that, it says it caused confusion in the enemy. As soon as, see, we don't understand, we forget so easily the power of worship and praise. 
We for the power of prayer, the power of fasting. We forget so you don't understand that, you know, when, when we sing, when we sang that song tonight, when we sang this morning, and it's every time we gather together, whether it's here in church or you're at home or in your car or gather together with a group of people in a life group or, or soak or whatever it may be, wherever you gather and begin to praise God from your whole heart, you don't understand the power that is having in the spiritual realm. As we sing in this place, there's God moves in this place and lives are touched. But you've got to understand there's people across the road just here and walking by and just across the road down there that are being, that God is moving and it's going beyond these four walls because it breaks, it's not confined to a building. It's a spiritual act of warfare that comes against the enemy and pushes back against the enemy. And as soon as they began to sing, as soon as they began to pray, God moved. He didn't move before it. He didn't move after. He moved exactly when they began to worship Him. So when you're facing a problem, how often is it that when you've got a difficult situation to face that you just stop and you begin to worship Him? Maybe if we did that more often, and understood the power of our praise in the midst of bad news, in the midst of something that suddenly happens, we just stop and go, God, on this moment, I need to draw near to you. And I don't know what's going on in this situation. I don't know what's, what's happening. I don't know how to fix this situation. But right now, and you just throw on a song. Or you just begin to sing a song and begin to praise. And, you can, and I can just imagine what God would do in that moment. What, what is activated in that moment. God starts to work on your behalf. And that's exactly what He did. He begins to work on behalf of these people. And the enemy destroys themselves. Destroys themselves and they arrive. And they didn't have to lift a finger. Didn't have to raise a sword. Didn't do anything. All they needed to do was praise and sing and worship. And God moved. We underestimate the power of praise and worship. Our battle today is not against people. Our battle in this world isn't against people. People do you know, come against us and, and the enemy uses people, unfortunately, to bring hurt and pain and destruction. But our battle isn't against them. It's against the forces of darkness behind them and the sin that causes them to do crazy things and terrible things to people, the brokenness that causes people acting that way. Our, our battle isn't against people, but it's against spiritual forces that behind those things that are going on. And those are the things that we need to combat in worship and prayer. And when we, when we worship and when we praise, it's the very thing you're not attacking the people that they're broken that are hurting but you're defeating the enemy that's causing brokenness in their life and you're pushing back against the enemy there's a scripture in uh in isaiah 58 19 and it says this in the king james new king james version says this so shall they fear the name of the lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. And I want to break this scripture down and just and so understand what this actually is saying. When you see this, it's amazing what this scripture actually means and what it's saying. And, it's, and it fits in exactly what we're talking about tonight. The Hebrew word in the above scripture for flood is nahar, which means a stream or a river. And we know the Holy Spirit is like a river or a stream. It says that many times in the Bible. What is missing in this verse is a comma after enemy. Most of us are aware the Holy Spirit flows like a river at times. But what I want to concentrate on is the word standard. 
The word standard is a wrong translation, this verse also, because in the scripture, the Hebrew word actually is nuk, which means to make flee. So what the scripture is really saying is this, when the enemy shall come in, comma, like a river, the spirit of God will make him flee. It's not the enemy that comes in like a flood. The enemy comes in, but the spirit of God, like a flood, lifts up a stand and makes him flee. What about the standard? What does the, what is, where does that come in? Standard in Hebrew is neck, which means something lifted up. A standard, a signal, a signal polar ends on a, a banner, a sign, a sail, a rallying point. It's like in the Roman armies had them, they would march and they'd have a banner that they would hold up. They'd have a, a um, icon on a pole. They had many armies use them and it was like we'd march out before the enemy like we are, this is where we are. We're taking this ground. This is our sign. This is our rallying point. That's what a standard means. It's a banner. It's a standard, okay? The word standard is defined in Webster's Dictionary is any figure, object, flag or banner used as a symbol of a leader, people or military unit. So when God raises a standard, what he is doing is proclaiming who he is and what he stands for. And he does this many times through his church. The church proclaims their allegiance in, in this world to Jesus, Jesus Christ, and raises the banner of the Lord's righteousness in the earth. That is, the church says we stand with our king and his army and our standards are his standards. In other words, we fly the colors of Jesus Christ, which are righteousness, holiness, faithfulness, and so on. Where everything he stands for, we stand for. Raising the standard also concerns spiritual warfare, the kingdom, and stands against evil in the land. This requires prayer as well as making noise, raising our voices in praise and in worship, against standing against the enemy's evil plans. Raising the standard requires boldness and faith in the faith in the face of evil and opposition. Raising a standard also means to mobilize the army against the enemy. When the European royal kingdoms went to war, they raised a standard which represented who they were and what they stood for. They're those banners. They're in movies. You watch movies in the 16th century. You'll see them using all those banners and standards. When intercessors pray against the devil's works, they are also raising the standard, defying the devil's rights to hold ground and proclaiming God's victory through Jesus Christ. We remind the devil that he must get out because a greater one is here. The Lord Jesus, our banner. The enemy is trying to take ground in our nation. The enemy is taking ground trying to destroy family, trying to destroy marriage, trying to destroy identity, trying to make wrong right and right wrong. But the enemy is trying to take ground that he does not own. Because God is the creator of family. He is the creator of marriage. He is the creator of God. And our moral standards come from God. And so you have an enemy in our nation at the moment that is trying to take ground where he has no right to take. But he will take it if he can. If we don't stand up and we don't pray and have a voice and raise a standard against it, he'll take whatever he can get, but it's not his to take. And the church needs to stand up and come against him with praise and worship and, and speak and not stay silent in what they do and what they say and stand up and push back against the enemy. Because again, apart from all those things that are going on and things that are trying to be pushed through in, in 
in parliament and all that kind of stuff. Behind all that stuff is an evil force of darkness that is trying to bring destruction to our land and many nations around the world. In Colossians 2.15 it says, Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. And by the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner, they were his. That's what Jesus did when he rose again to new life. He defeated the enemy and he wasn't their prisoner, but they are now prisoners to him. Because he has all authority and all power. And when we're in Jesus, that same authority falls on us. Isaiah 11.10 says, In that day, the heir to David's throne, talking about Jesus, will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him. Lives will be a glorious place. Jesus Christ is our banner. So that same picture of raising up a standard, raising up a banner, it's talking about Jesus because the Bible says that he is a banner, that he is a standard. That's who Jesus is. His victory is our victory when we proclaim him as Savior and Lord in the earth. And when we do that, we are raising a standard. And when the church of Jesus Christ raises the banner of righteousness, we are declaring the lordship of our king in the land and proclaiming his victory. So when we lift up the name of Jesus in praise and in worship and in prayer, we are saying to the enemy, you can't have any more ground. We are coming to take ground off you in Jesus' name. The church was, you know, the... When the scripture says the gates of hell will not prevail, we used to sing a song about that. We won't go and sing that tonight. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the army of the Lord. It, the church was, was, is a, there's a militance about the church. The church is always meant to be moving forward and taking ground. The church is never meant to be sta- st- stood still. It should never be moving backwards, but it should always be taking a ground against the enemy. There's times when you're in a battle that you just need to stand against you, but your standing is actually winning because the enemy is being pushed back because God is fighting on your behalf. But the church is always should be advancing. In your life, you should always be growing. You should always be getting closer to God. You should be always getting to know Him more and more and growing in your faith daily, living that out and knowing Him. And the church should always have faith. To believe there's always victory because Jesus already won the victory. The church is never, ever defeated. The church can't be defeated. It's impossible for the church to be defeated. There's a, Jesus has won the victory. There's always, we just need to stand. And the, the only way you can be defeated is to actually take Jesus out of the picture. Because if Jesus stays as the head of the church, you can't lose. If Jesus is Lord of your life, you can't lose. The only way that you will lose is if you remove him as Lord of your life. If you choose to walk away and say, I don't want to do it your way, well, then you're exposing yourself to an enemy that can have his way with you. But if you, Jesus is Lord of your life and, and living as part as he's on your heart and say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you, I put you first, then the enemy cannot touch you. He may, he may try to. He may come against you, but he can't win. There'll be battles you have to fight, but if you, you just have to stand in the face of that and lift up the name of Jesus and you have victory. I want to read to you bring this into modern day context and uh, some of you may have seen uh, the movie that came out a few years ago now called Dunkirk and, uh, and it talks about um, that what happened in that 
place with all those people being rescued by boats between the uh, French and English in the English Channel there. And the movie portrays that but doesn't tell you everything that went on. And I want to read to you uh, an account of what happened in the background of, of everything that went on. And this matches up very much with the story of Jehoshaphat and uh, in some ways of what happened. And, uh, and I just want to read this. This is in 1940. It was a time of grave crisis for the British Empire and for the whole civilized world. On May 10th, Hitler had launched his Bootsberg uh, against the low countries of France. By the end of the second week in May, the French defenses had been broken. German panzer forces led by Rommel and his 7th Panzer Division burst through and with lightning speed began to rush in Belgium. Very soon, Rommel's armoured pincer movement was threatening the British army with encirclement and our forces were being obliged to withdraw. Back at home, Mr. Churchill feared that it would be his hard lot to announce the greatest military disaster in our long history. Whilst on the 27th of May, the German High Command went so far as to boast that the British Army is encircled and our troops are proceeding to its annihilation. With the entire front collapsing rapidly, the decision was reached and uh, to home to evacuate our forces, evacuate the British forces from the continent. But the only port from which to evacuate the British ex, uh, ex- expeditionary force was Dunkirk and that was already being seriously threatened by the Germans. You want to throw a picture up. So there's a, so basically there's a, and I want you to understand what's going on. So they're, they're being forced back to the ocean, back to Dunkirk, and then they needed to get home, but there wasn't enough boats to get all these men home. We're talking about over 300,000 troops, the whole British army. Taking stock of the uh, predicament, Churchill said in the Second World um, in the Second World War, I thought, and some good judges agree with me, that perhaps twenty to thirty thousand men might be uh, rescued. The whole root and core of the and brain of the British Army seemed about to perish upon the field, or to be led into ignominious and starving captivity. All therefore seemed about to be lost. But Britain had a godly sovereign. Seeing this situation developing, His Majesty King George VI requested that Sunday, 26th of May, should be observed as a national day of prayer, just like we did. In a stirring broadcast, he called the people of Britain and of the Empire to commit their cause to God. Together with members of the cabinet, the king attended Westminster Abbey, whilst millions of his subjects in all parts of the Commonwealth and Empire flocked to the churches to join in prayer. Britain was given inspiring leadership in those days and her people responded immediately when this kind of initiative was taken. The whole nation was at prayer on that Sunday. The scene outside Westminster Abbey was remarkable. Photographs show long queues of people could not even get in. The Abbey was so crowded, so much so that the following morning the Daily Sketch exclaimed, nothing like it has ever happened before. That's a picture of Westminster, of all the people that couldn't get in. Thousands, tens of thousands of people lining up to pray for their nation. In its hour of deep distress, the heart cry from both monarch and people alike was going up to God in prayer. And that cry did not go unanswered. For very soon, three miracles were seen to happen. The first miracle was that for some reason which had never yet been fully explained, Hitler overruled his generals and halted the advance of his armoured columns at the very point when they could have proceeded to the British Army's annihilation. They were now only 10 miles away. 
Later, Churchill asserted in his memoirs that it was because Hitler undoubtedly believed that his air superiority would be sufficient to prevent a large-scale evacuation by sea. That is, the very, that, that is very significant in terms of the second miracle. A storm of unprecedented fury broke over Flanders on Tuesday the 28th of May 1940, grounding the German squadrons and enabling the British Army uh, formations now 8 to 12 miles from Dunkirk to move up to the foot of the coast in the darkness of the storm and the violence of the rain with scarcely any interruption from aircraft which was unable to operate in such turbulent conditions. The Führer had obviously not taken the weather into his reckoning nor the one who could controls the weather. The third miracle. Despite the storm in Flanders, a great calm such has rarely been experienced settled over the English Channel during the days which followed and its waters became still as a mill pond. There's also a dense fog came over the whole land so you couldn't see. It was this quite extraordinary calm which enabled a vast armada of little ships, big ships, warships, privately owned motor cruisers from British rivers and estuaries, in fact almost anything that would float, to ply back and forth in a desperate bid to rescue as many men as possible. Yet still to a very large extent the German air squadrons were unable to intervene, certainly not in force nor in a way that Hitler had anticipated, for so many of these squadrons still remained grounded. And something else happened. Even though some squadrons did get through, it seemed that yet another miracle happened. Many of the troops on the beaches were fav- uh, favoured with a strange immunity. There was, when there was about 400 men were being machine gunned and bombed systematically by about 60 enemy aircraft, one man who flung himself down with the rest reported that after the repeated attack from low-flying aircraft was over, he was amazed to find that there was not a single casualty. So there was 400 men laying face down on the beach with 60 aeroplanes bombing them and firing against them and not one of them was hit. Another man, a chaplain on the beach, was likewise machine gunned and bombed. He was on the beach laying down as well. Bombed that as he lay on the beach. After what seemed an eternity, he realized he had not been hit and rose to his feet to find that the sand all around where he'd been lying was pitted with bullet holes and that his figure was outlined on the ground. It's pretty amazing. Truly amazing things were happening. There were signs on every hand that an intervening power was at work. Officers and men alike had seen the hand of God, powerful to save, delivering them from the hands of a mighty foe who, humanly speaking, had them at his mercy. And they were not slow to say so. Even Fleet Street had placed it on the record that two miracles had made possible what seemed impossible. So grateful was the nation for this mighty deliverance that Sunday, 9th of June 1940, was uh, appointed as a day of national thanksgiving. On the eve of that day, C.B. Mortlock stated in an article in the Daily Telegraph, the prayers of the nation were answered and that the God of hosts himself had supported the valiant men of the British force. Officers of high rank do not hesitate to put down the deliverance of the British force to the fact of a nation being at prayer on the Sunday 26th of May, two days before that great storm in Flanders and the calm that came over the channel. The word miracle was soon being heard on all sides and a conscientious of a 
consciousness of a miraculous deliverance pervaded the camps in which the troops were being housed back in England. Mr. Churchill, when he chose 4th of June as an occasion for making a statement to the House of Commons, spoke with a voice charged with emotion when he reported that rather than 20 to 30,000 men, as he reported earlier, being saved, 335,000 men had been carried out of the jaws of death and shame to their native land. He referred to what had happened as a miracle of deliverance. And so we read about stories in the Old Testament about God miraculously saving and intervening in battles. And there's a modern day one that happened 80 years ago. It wasn't because God thought the British people were better or didn't love the Germans or Hitler any less. It was a fact that they turned to him in prayer because the whole nation turned to God and said, God, we need you because their nation had been grounded in in that and their leaders were wise enough and godly enough to understand when there's nothing else they could do, the only one to turn to is him. I'm just wondering how bad does our nation have to get with stuff that's happening in our nation before the church realizes that they need to stand up in prayer. How bad does it have to get before we stand up and go into battle for those lives that are broken and hurting, for people that don't know him, that don't know Jesus? To go on a battle not against people but against an enemy that is seeking to steal, kill and destroy lives. That's what Jesus said. The devil comes to steal, kill and to destroy. This is what I see in the, like in the, in the story of Jehoshaphat in the army. We have a spiritual enemy of darkness waiting, wanting to destroy people's lives. Jesus said the devil comes to steal, kill and destroy. Just like he had, he had, there's an army come against him. We have a spiritual army that would want to destroy us, that he wanted to come against us and wreak whatever havoc he could do. And we have people in our world being harassed and tormented by an enemy and they don't know Jesus and they don't know how to get free. They've got issues and problems in their life and there's terrible things going on and they don't know how to get free of it. There's a terrible addictions, there's ter- terrible brokenness in their lives and they try all these different things, they try different ways in their own strength but they need a supernatural God with supernatural power that can set them free from all the stuff they're going through. And so there's a there's an enemy that wants to attack them and then there's, a, there's people that are helpless that are getting, getting beaten up by an enemy but in the middle is the church. And we are meant to, like, like the singers went out in front of the army. That's where I see us. The church is standing between an enemy, a spiritual enemy, and the people of our world, your neighbours, your friends, your workmates, the people living next door to you, people that don't know Jesus, people that are going through all these kinds of things in life that are battling stuff you don't even know about, that on the outside it looks okay, but on the inside they're falling apart and they need a God that loves them. They need to know about a Jesus that loves them and can set them free. And they don't know, no one's ever told them, no one, no one has ever offered that to them. They don't know how to find Him and they're not even sure if they believe in Him because no one's ever presented Him. But the church stands in the gap. And the church stands in prayer and in fasting and in worship. 
the church comes and stands and begins to pray and to push back the enemy and stand in the way and said, you've taken, we will not allow you to come any further into our nation. We will not allow you to come any further into Harvey Bay. We'll not allow you to come any further into my street, into my neighborhood, into my suburb. You've, come, you've wreaked havoc in that house so, that so much, but no, no more. You've come so far, but no more. And we can begin to contend with the enemy in prayer and fasting. And every time we worship, every time we lift up his name, every time we praise, you're standing against the enemy. Every time you raise your voice and stand up for righteousness against you things that you know are wrong, every time you speak up, no matter what flack you may get back, you're standing against an enemy. You're standing against something and you're making a difference because you're pushing back against the enemy. You're standing in righteousness and God backs up someone who stands for righteousness and his, his ways, his standard. It's like you're lifting up Jesus as a standard and saying, I am standing in the gap for people that don't know him. And one by one, those people will get set free and get some sin because they'll get presented to Jesus that they see loves them and cares for them and has paid a price for them and died for them so they can be free. Thank you for joining us. The Bayside Christian Church community aims to transform our city and beyond with the life and power of Jesus Christ. If you want to know more or just keep in touch, check us out at www.baysidechristianchurch.com.au or follow us on our social media sites at Bayside Christian Church.